0: You'll find your place in your Bible with me this morning for the next few minutes at Luke chapter 1. We're going to read beginning in verse 26 through 38, and we're going to continue in this series of messages about the wonder of Christmas. This is the second message in that series. This is a very familiar story. Often it's so familiar that we take it for granted. We don't stop and realize some of the wonderful things that are happening here, but I want us to look at something very specific today. Beginning in verse 26, you'll follow along with me. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his his sayings and considered what manner of greeting this was. let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask now as we turn our attention to your word, we've been worshiping in song and we've been worshiping through prayer. Now we come to worship through your word. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts today about the wonder of Christmas. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a cute little story about a little boy who was watching his mother's tummy grow every single week. She was pregnant with a little girl, their next child to come. And every week, there was less and less room on her lap to sit. And finally, this little boy, just trying to grasp it all, asked his mother the question, Mommy, why is your belly so big? Not a question every woman wants to hear, I'm sure. Mommy, why is your belly so big? Well, she tried to explain that she tried to explain to him that his little sister was inside of her. And with this childlike reasoning, this little boy asked, Mommy, why is my little sister inside your stomach? Just trying to alleviate these obvious concerns that she could tell he was having, uh, she simply explained to him that this was a baby that was growing within her. This was a baby that was inside her stomach. Well, later that night, His daddy was putting him to bed, and he was tucking him into the bed, and the little boy said quietly, Daddy, I have two questions to ask you. First, why does mommy keep eating little kids? (laughs) And second, how did I escape? (laughs) You know, when you have that uh, childlike understanding of life, there are a lot of things that are hard to understand, aren't they? Uh, Even when you're our age, there's a lot of things that are sort of difficult for us to understand. We can't reason them out. We don't have all the facts and all the details. We can't reconcile everything in our finite understanding. And that's especially true when it comes to the story of the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. I mean, after all, this involves a host of angels that make their appearance, it involves a pregnant virgin. Hear those words? Isn't that an oxymoron? a pregnant virgin. It involves a prophetic dream, a divine child, a supernatural star. This wasn't the natural occurrence that we've just recently talked about, this being talked about. This was a supernatural star. There were lowly shepherds and there were pagan astrologers who walked for weeks and months in order to find this child, knowing that they probably would never see the child again, but they came to worship him. And on and on the list of things in this story that occur are difficult sometimes for us to comprehend. How is it that these things could happen? They just don't compute in our minds, our finite minds. We just aren't able to reason it all out. You wouldn't be alone if you felt that way. The third president of the United States of America was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson was a skeptic. He didn't believe in the miraculous work and the divinity divinity of Jesus. And so he began a little project. I'm going to show you a picture of it. He began a little project where he cut out of the Bible the parts of the Gospels that he specifically believed. And you can see where he's taken either some scissors or something very sharp and he's cut them out left out all of the miraculous works, left out all of the divinity of Jesus, and just taken out the moral teachings of Jesus. I mean, he felt in his thinking that this, these things were over the top. I mean, after all, this was the Enlightenment era where you talked about the sense of reason. and He took those things that he excised from a Bible and he put them into an 84-page leather-bound book and it became his Bible. It was really supposed to be for private use And it was to be kept secret forever, but after a number of decades, it was discovered. And it was the work of a man who spent much of his life grappling with and doubting religion. Now, the reality is that when you stop and you think about the Christmas story, there's a lot of hard questions to understand. There's a lot of miraculous things that are going on, things that just don't totally compute, that a scientist can't put in a test tube and reproduce, and it makes it difficult for us sometimes. There's a lot of people that way. Maybe you're one of those people this morning. I'll never forget when I was 17, 18 years of age, I was visiting in Atlanta, Georgia. My wife and I, we weren't married that time, but we were dating, and we were going door to door in a neighborhood, and we were, it was Christmas time, and we were handing out literature about our church. And in the process uh, we were as well giving them uh, gospel, you know, gospel materials to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Well, we came to one particular house. It had to have been the most decorated house on that particular block. It was unbelievable uh, how decorated the house was. They had a, something on the front of the door completely decorated. There were lights all over the house, and there was an incredibly beautiful tree that was in the picture window in the front of that house. And so I was feeling pretty confident this is going to be a good visit. I knock on the door and the man comes to the door and I begin to introduce myself. I tell him why I'm there. I offer to give to him the materials that I'm holding in my hand and I'll never forget what he said. Very gruffly, he said, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. And to be honest with you, at 17, 18 years of age, I didn't know what to say. I was absolutely stunned Here was a man who was celebrating the Christmas season, but he didn't know what Christmas was all about or he didn't believe what Christmas was all about. He obviously had questions that he couldn't answer. There were things that he couldn't understand. There were things that didn't compute in his mind. And Maybe that's where some people that you know are. Maybe that's where you are as well. And I don't think there's a better story for us to talk about this, questions that are hard to, to comprehend, miracles that we can't fully explain. I don't think there's a better story for us to discuss that, at least at this season of the year, than the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three things that I want you to take note of related to this story as you think about the Christmas story with me this morning. And the first is that faith is required. Faith is absolutely necessary. Christianity presupposes the reality of miracles. Let me say it again. Christianity presupposes the reality of miracles, things that cannot be humanly explained. A contemporary theologian of our day who's very respected amongst evangelicals is a man by the name of Wayne Grudem. In his systematic theology, he defines what he calls or what we call a miracle. He says a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder. Isn't that what we're talking about? The wonder of Christmas in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Another contemporary theologian of our day, Michael Horton, puts it this way, talking about miracles. He says, Unlike God's ordinary providence, his miraculous intervention involves a suspension or alteration of natural laws and processes in particular circumstances. In other words, they're telling you that there are things that you can't explain and you can't fully understand that God is able to do that nobody else is able to do simply because he is God. And when you come to the Christmas story, we are reminded that faith is necessary. Faith is required. God has always been able to do things we don't understand and can't comprehend. He isn't limited by the finitude the narrowness of our mental abilities or understanding. He has a right to do things and take actions that we never can fully grasp and then require us to believe it because he said he did it. God's made our hearts such that we can believe more than our minds can comprehend. And God doesn't require us to understand everything he does before we believe it or believe that he did it. That's called the miraculous. That's the intervention of God when he suspends the natural laws for a a period of time to do something that only God can do. And even though you can't test them or you can't reproduce them or you can't fully understand them, the fact is those are the things that God is able to do. And you might not grasp it. I certainly can't grasp it in my limited intellectuality, but I can tell you, that God is able to do all those things. And every time you come to the Christmas story, you're being reminded that faith is necessary. Faith is required. Just to show you what I mean, how faith is required throughout the Bible. Think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. In Genesis 2, 17, God tells Adam and Eve that they're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Do you know why he tells them that? He says, because in the day that you eat of that tree, you will, do you know the next word? You will die, surely die. You will die. Now let me ask you a question. What did Adam and Eve know about death? Absolutely nothing. There had been no death before them. They had never experienced death themselves In other words, God had told them something that was going to occur if they partook of that tree, but they couldn't have fully understood or grasped all that it meant when he said you're going to die. But even though they couldn't grasp it all, they believed it. Just a little bit later in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, listen to what Eve says. It shows she believed what she couldn't fully grasp. Listen, she says, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. She didn't understand death like we understand death. But she believed it because God said it. Because faith is something that's absolutely necessary. Faith is something that's required when you come to the Scripture to believe things that God can do that you cannot fully and completely comprehend in the limited understanding of your own mind. For instance, I don't understand electricity. I don't understand how it all works. But I'm not sitting in the dark every day refusing to turn on a switch to allow the electricity to light up my house because I don't understand it. I believe it, even though I don't fully understand it. Every year, especially as I remember it, around the Easter season, there are all these TV documentaries that want to try to to prove how the various events of the Exodus could have taken place. You maybe have seen some of those documentaries. I'm sure they're not just around Easter only, but... I remember those that are around the Easter season. And they try to take uh, the various events, the miraculous events of uh, of the exodus, and they try to prove naturally how these things could have occurred. And the result is when you watch those programs, there is no mention ever, any mention, of the miraculous ever occurring, that God intervened and stopped the course of nature for a period of time in order to do something that only God can do and then require us to believe him because God said he did it. It's assumed in these programs that if scientists can't find a natural explanation for the phenomenon, that it must not have actually happened. In other words, if science can't prove it, then it can't be done, even by the God of the miraculous. If you live in that world, that's a naturalistic point of view. That's a naturalistic worldview. If God can only do what scientists can reproduce. We're in a world of hurt. As a matter of fact, we might as well throw out the rest of the Bible because the Bible requires faith. It presupposes the miraculous. It presupposes a sovereign God who can do what mankind cannot do and cannot always explain because he is God. Faith is required in a number of areas of the Bible. If you just stop and think about it, for instance, faith is required and necessary in the creation account. Isn't that what Hebrews 11.3 says? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. He made it ex nihilo. He made it out of nothing. By the power of his word, he spoke it into existence. And believing that God is the invisible designer and creator is absolutely essential for those who want to know God. The Bible doesn't even explain the existence of God. You say, I want want to prove the existence of God. Do you realize the Bible does not seek to prove the existence of God? The Bible assumes the existence of God. What does he say in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, what's the next word? God. In the beginning, God. And then what does it go on to say that he does? Created the heavens and the earth. It assumes the reality of God. And the problem is if you don't believe that God created the world, then you'll probably have trouble believing that God loves the world. If you discount Genesis 1-1 and God being able to do what you cannot fully explain and you cannot reason in your own mind, you'll probably have difficulty understanding how on the cross of Calvary, Jesus paid the penalty for all of mankind's sin. You see what I'm saying? When we come to the Christmas story, we are reminded that faith is necessary. Faith is required. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that questions are bad. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. I'm not suggesting that looking for evidence is bad. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But when trying to understand God's works and ways, sometimes the most you can understand is that he is present and he is powerful. And that's all you get. Because God is greater than you and me. And aren't you thankful? Faith is not only necessary when it comes to the miracle of creation. Faith is necessary when it comes to the miracle of the incarnation. Right? How do you explain a pregnant virgin? That's an oxymoron. Those two words don't go together. A pregnant virgin. And yet the Bible repeats to us that the one who was born in Bethlehem is God in the flesh. As a matter of fact, it quotes from the Old Testament Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Let me just read a short portion of it. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." 700 years before the birth of Jesus, before the angel Gabriel announces it to Mary, it has already been foretold that the one who would be born in Bethlehem to this pregnant virgin is the God man. When he says the Christ child in Isaiah chapter 9, it refers to his humanity. When he calls him the son that is given, that refers to his deity. He is both God and he is both man, fully, the two together. We learned a phrase last week. Do you remember it? When the two natures of of God, God and man, come together, it's called the hypostatic union. Some of you remember. The hypostatic union of the dual natures of Christ. Can you explain that? If you're looking for me to explain that, you're looking the wrong direction. I've been studying theology a long time. And I know what the Bible says about it, but explaining it in a scientific fashion where we can test it and we can reproduce it, it simply can't be done. Why? Because at the Christmas season, we're reminded that faith is absolutely necessary. The Bible presupposes there is a God. It assumes there is a God. It doesn't argue for his existence it simply declares his existence. And when it comes to the incarnation, Jesus, who's born in Bethlehem, is both God and man. He had to be fully God to live a sinless life, and he had to be fully human in order to be the substitutionary, to die the substitutionary death. As God, he's able to be our Savior. As man, he's able to be our substitute for sin. Do you see it? He had to be both, but can you explain it? No, but we believe it, don't we? That's the miracle of the incarnation. It's a truth that's beyond our complete comprehension. It's something that we cannot test nor reproduce, and it requires for us to come and believe, to believe. If you're one of those who says, I just don't have faith, I just don't believe. Well, first of all, there is nobody that doesn't have faith. You say, well, I just don't believe. Well, that's your right to not believe. But if you're going to come to the Bible, you've got to come to the Bible with a sense of understanding that faith is required when you approach the Bible. Think about it. Faith is necessary in the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, this is what he says, Paul speaking, if if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you have to believe? The resurrection. You say, well, I, I, I can't reason that out. How could somebody that died on a, a cruel Roman cross ever be raised from the dead? Does it matter whether you can explain it or not? We have the Bible's word on it. God doesn't have to explain his existence to you or to me. We assume, the Bible assumes his existence, and God says this is what he did. And we come to the Bible by faith, right? And we believe not only creation and the incarnation, we believe the resurrection. We believe that Jesus was raised from the grave. I read an interesting study, it's three years old. An interesting study that said 25% of Christians don't believe in the resurrection, 25% of Christians don't believe in the resurrection. So let me play the fact checker. Been a lot of that going on these last number of months, right? Let let me play the fact checker for you. And let me correct this erroneous reporting. 100% of Christians believe the resurrection. If you don't believe the resurrection, you're not a Christian, So that when you come to the Bible, it presupposes that you're going to have faith. You've got to put faith in things that you can't fully explain or you can't fully understand. Faith, when you come to the Christmas story, is required. Faith is necessary. For instance, can you explain how Jesus took on himself the sins of all mankind and paid the penalty for everyone? Can you explain how Jesus just appeared in a room with the disciples the following Sunday after his resurrection? John says the doors were locked. There were no windows and Jesus just appeared. Can you explain how Jesus was able to ascend back into heaven accompanied by the angels? He didn't have a jetpack. It wasn't a big dust cloud being, you know, being whipped up from the, from the jet pack on his back. Can you explain how believing in Jesus can effectuate eternal salvation in someone's heart, bring eternal salvation to someone's heart? Can you explain how the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and secures him till the day of redemption? Can you explain that? You say, well, I know what the Bible says about it. Yeah, I know you know what the Bible says about it, but you believe it because God said it, right? Can you explain how a person is sentenced to hell? but is never consumed in the flames of that awful place? Can you explain that? In other words, when we come to this Christmas story, we are reminded that as we approach the Bible, there are things that God does that we cannot explain. And you may be a scientist, and you may be really smart, and you may be an intellectual, but the fact of the matter is, you're not going to be able to test it and reproduce it because God did it. It's called a miracle. And we come to the Bible believing what God said because God said it. And so when you come to the Christmas story, we are reminded and we are taught that faith is necessary. Will you say that out loud with me? Faith is necessary. Faith is necessary when you approach the Bible. Because there's always going to be things that you cannot fully understand. And even if you had all of the intellect of all of mankind, you still couldn't explain it. Because God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and his thoughts far supersede ours. And if that's not your God, then you don't have the God of the Bible. You've got a God of your own making. And who wants to follow a God like that? The second thing about the Christmas story, not only that the Christmas story reminds us that faith is necessary, but the Christmas story reminds us and teaches us that questions are expected. Questions are expected. Now that you understand that faith is necessary to understanding the Bible and the miraculous works of God, it's important to say that that doesn't preclude asking questions. What I'm going to call, hear the word, what I'm going to call doubt. Now, I'm going to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Sometimes they're not distinguishable. But I'm going to distinguish between doubt and unbelief so that when I say doubt, I'm talking about honest questions, things that we just can't understand. We grapple with them in our minds, but we can't quite get a handle on it. We believe it. We believe it's true, but we're just not quite sure how it's true. And we have some measure of doubt. One theologian put it this way. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. And I agree. While faith is required and faith is necessary, questions Are expected. There's gonna be questions that are raised in all of our minds. Who is it on this Christmas day, when we're talking about this Christmas story, I should say, when we're talking about the birth of Jesus, who is it in this particular text that we read who is doubting at this moment? Not unbelief, not unbelief. I'll distinguish the two in a moment further. Who is it that's doubting at this moment? None other than Mary herself. Look at verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, "How can this be? A pregnant a pregnant virgin? How can this be since I do not know a man?" That's a euphemism for sexual relationships. I've never lain with a man. I've never been with a man in that intimate way. How is it possible for me to be pregnant with a child? That's never happened before. Nobody knows anything about that. How in the world could that ever be? Mind you, I say again, this is not unbelief on her part. She's got honest questions about something that's simply hard for her to understand. And so I say it again to you. When I say she's a pregnant virgin, I'll just step back and let somebody stand and explain that one to me. a pregnant virgin now you understand there's a difference between doubts and unbelief this woman is asking questions she's trying to figure out you know what does this mean how can this be i don't understand this is not this is not the way that i was taught that children come into the world so how in the world could this ever be you understand there's a difference between doubts Honest questions, probing questions, and unbelief. Doubt is something you grapple with in your mind. Unbelief is a death grip on your heart. Doubt says, I don't know if this is true, so I'm going to investigate it. Unbelief says, I'm certain this can't be true, so I'm not even going to consider it. Doubt seeks to understand. Unbelief has already closed its mind. Do you see the difference? It's okay to ask questions. I suppose that's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm telling you that you got to come to the Bible, you got to come to the Christmas story and understand that faith is required. Faith is absolutely necessary. But questions are expected. It's okay to ask questions. you got to understand that God's ways and God's thoughts are beyond your ways and your thoughts. You may never fully understand or be able to reproduce everything that God does, and that doesn't mean that God didn't do it. But it's okay to ask those questions. When I was a little boy, I was a shy little boy. Very shy. Backwards shy. I got embarrassed one time in the second grade. And after that, I stopped asking questions. Something happened. I'll tell you the story. Something happened in that classroom with that teacher. And it embarrassed me. I never wanted to ask another question. And I suppose if my mother said it to me once, she said it to me a thousand times over the course of my, school, my schooling years. She said, "Davy, and you're not allowed to call me that. She said, "Davy, there's no bad questions. There's no bad questions. If you want to know something, ask it. There's no bad questions. If you want to know something, ask it. Well, now I want to just tell you that there are some bad questions. <laughs> there are some questions you don't want to ask. But uh, I asked one in the second grade and got embarrassed at it and never wanted to ask another question. There's nothing wrong with questions, that's my point. There's nothing wrong with seeking to try to understand something that seems to be beyond your comprehension. But I want you to understand that the enemy of faith is not doubt. The enemy of faith is a closed-minded unbelief. And there's a difference between the, do, between the two. Did you hear what I said? The enemy of faith is not doubt. Doubt. The enemy of faith is a closed-minded unbelief. That's the enemy of faith. There was a woman that was going to make a Thanksgiving dinner, the first one she'd ever made in her life. Cooking really had never been her forte. Any of you other ladies can attest to that? It was really never her forte. And At mealtime, she said to her family, I'm about to bring out the food. This is my first try at a Thanksgiving meal, so if it's not good and you don't like it, I don't want to hear a word out of any of you. And then she said, We'll just go to a restaurant if we have to. She disappears back into the kitchen for a few minutes, gathering the food together. And when she returns with that food, her family had already put on their coats to leave. (laughs) That's not doubt that's unbelief that's unbelief the enemy of faith is not doubt the enemy of faith is a closed minded unbelief that refuses to investigate and accept the fact that you can't explain everything that God does and that faith is required and faith is necessary but it's okay to ask questions it's okay to ask questions Doubt really only poses a threat when you don't deal with it. If we don't deal with questions, that is, th- these things that we can't fully grasp and fully understand, it may well turn into a hardened unbelief. Think about the most famous doubter in the New Testament. Do you know his name? His name was Thomas. We've even written a children's song so that we can remember him, right? Don't be a doubting Thomas, rest fully in his promise. Why worry, 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 worry when you can pray, right? So we sing about Thomas. We, we remember him, poor guy. I mean, for the last two millennia, we, we've, been, we've been singing about his doubts, but you got to understand, Thomas saw the brutal death that Jesus died on that Roman cross. He knew that Jesus had been taken and placed in a tomb and it had been sealed shut. And so when his other disciple brethren, came and said, no, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. What did Thomas say? "Mm -mm. Unless I can see him with my own eyes and I can touch those nail prints, I won't believe it. What happens? The following Sunday after resurrection, the second Sunday following the resurrection, these men are in a closed room. There's no way to get in. The door's locked. And suddenly Jesus appears in that room. And you know where Jesus makes his beeline? He goes directly to Thomas. You know, Peter's there, all the other James is there. You know, directly to Thomas. And, and listen to what he says. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord, but he said, I want. Believe it unless I can touch the mark of the nails in his hand. And then Thomas says, put your finger. Jesus says to Thomas, excuse me, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. But now here's the incredible thing. The next thing that he says, Jesus says, because you have seen me, Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Isn't that incredible? Are y'all still with me? Isn't that incredible? Any of you see Jesus the day you got saved? No, you didn't see Jesus physically. You couldn't reach out and touch the nail prints in his hands and his feet, put your hand in his side. You couldn't do that. The problem isn't having doubts, the problem is having. Are you ready? The problem is having lazy doubts, lazy questions. Those are the ones that cause the serious problem of unbelief. By lazy doubts, I'm talking about those kinds of questions that you just simply refuse to investigate, to do the investigative work yourself to see if something is true or not. You just depend on what somebody else says to you or what somebody else tells you. And the result of those kind of lazy doubts is usually deception, and oftentimes it's, a, it's an obstinate unbelief. As a matter of fact, I will tell you this, that there's a lot of people that are not yet Christians. They're not yet followers of Jesus, and you want to know why? They heard somebody speak against Christ, and about, against Christianity. Instead of going checking out these things for themselves, they've just allowed the word of the other person to be their own word. And now they're gambling their entire eternal destiny on the word of somebody else. How dangerous is that? Some of you are doing that. Some of you are doing that. You've heard something, some professor somewhere. You heard some former professing Christian somewhere. And you just took their word for it. You heard the words of some skeptic somewhere and you just took their word for it. You didn't bother to go and do the hard work. You had lazy doubts that brought you to the place of unbelief. Questions aren't the problem. Even having doubts isn't the problem. The problem is the lazy doubts. When It's allowed to go on in your mind and you you, you gamble your entire eternal destiny on what somebody else tells you rather than investigating it for yourself. As a matter of fact, I would tell you, I could take you to the authors who have written several profound books about the resurrection of Jesus who started out as skeptics not believing the resurrection of Jesus. They had questions that had gone to unbelief, but instead of having those lazy doubts, they chose to investigate it. When they investigated investigated it, they were convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Faith is necessary. When you come to the Christmas story, we're reminded faith is necessary. We're reminded that questions are expected. Mary asked a question. Questions are expected. But that brings me lastly to say this Christmas story teaches us that yielding is personal. Yielding is personal. What moved Mary from temporary doubt to absolute faith? The answer is in what the angel said to her in verse 37. Notice, for with God nothing will be, what's what's the word? impossible. Is there anything impossible for your God? I mean, he can't sin. He isn't going to do that which contradicts his word or contradicts his will. I'm not talking about those kind of things. Is there anything that God can't do, anything about nature that God cannot suspend it for the moment if he wishes to do so by the power of his sovereignty? Not a thing. And in the words of Gabriel, He changed the focus of Mary's limited understanding to help her see God's limitless ability. Isn't that amazing? In that moment, she surrendered to God. She moved from her limited ability to God's unlimited, limitless ability. Her limited understanding to God's limitless ability... Her focus changed, although she still couldn't explain it. She still didn't understand everything about it. What does it mean to be a pregnant virgin? Nevertheless, she was reminded of the scripture that says, God can do the impossible. It says it numerous times. God can do the impossible. And suddenly she moved from the understanding that didn't quite quite come together in her mind to recognizing that God could make it happen. If he so choose, chooses, and she yields to him. Verse 38, notice it again. Then Mary said, behold, the maid served of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed. If you don't understand what it says, basically she's saying, or the angel's saying, trust what you already know to be true, that with God all things are possible. God's plan wasn't dependent on her ability to understand or her power to bring it to pass. All God wanted her to do was yield herself to him and he would do the rest. By the way, isn't that how you got saved? You came to a place and you recognized, I can't do this. I don't fully understand it all, but I know I can't do this on my own. Only Jesus can do this for me. And what did you do at that moment? We, we use the word yield. We mean trust. We, what she's doing, she's yielding. She's trusting herself to the power of the Almighty God. You don't have to understand everything about God or everything that God does in order to believe that he can do it. And that's true for any of the miracles God does, whether it's the miracle of forgiving our sins or making us right with God or giving us eternal life or reserving us a place in heaven. We don't have to understand everything there is. We don't have to be able to explain every aspect of it. But we have to recognize that with God, there's nothing impossible. And if he says it's true, it's true. And I believe it because God says it's true. I mean, if you stop and you think about it, The miracles of Christmas really lead us directly to the miracles of the cross. If you don't believe the miracles of Christmas, you won't believe the miracle of God's salvation that's made available to anyone and to everyone who will receive it. So that there has to come a moment in everybody's life when they either believe God or they reject God. And only those who believe him Experience his life changing power. By the way, you will never know what was promised in the birth of Jesus. You know, that peace on earth and goodwill toward men that's in the Christmas story. You will never know it until you yield, until you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a story about Billy Graham from the 1949 Los Angeles Crusade. It was fast approaching. By the way, that's the crusade that really launched him into his international, national and international ministry. In that particular crusade, 1949, there were 350,000 people who came over an eight-week period. There were 3,000 non-believers who became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But while Billy Graham's career was beginning to take off over the previous 10 years... He was wrestling with some doubts in his own mind. He had been reading some theologians by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr and Karl Barth, two liberal theologians. and He had begun to question the old-time gospel that he had embraced as a young man. That issue was the reliability of Scripture. He said, I was not a searching sophomore subject to characteristic skepticism, I was the president of a liberal arts college, Bible school, and seminary, an institution, he says, whose doctrinal statement was extremely strong and clear on this point. But because of reading those two liberal theologians, his faith was wavering. And on top of that, his dearest friend, Charles Templeton, was having doubts of his own. Billy, Sunday, Billy Graham and... Not Billy Sunday. Billy Billy Graham... And Charles Templeton had been crisscrossing the country for the previous eight to ten years with Youth for Christ. Billy Graham was uh, the one who had the most number of responses to his message, but everybody said that Charles Templeton was the far more gifted preacher of the two. But Charles Templeton was having doubts in his own mind about the things of Christ. So he decided he wanted to leave and go to Princeton Theological Seminary in 1948. And he invited Graham to join him. Graham said he liked to go with him, but he wasn't going to go to Princeton because of the liberal leanings. And he made him a counteroffer. He said, Chuck, go to Oxford and I'll go with you. Templeton had his eyes set on Princeton alone. The following winter, after after the first semester, the following winter in New York City, Templeton and Graham met. And this is what Templeton said to Billy. Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. Your language is out of date. You're going to have to learn the new jargon if you're going to be successful in your ministry. And that coupled with reading those those, uh, liberal theologians was causing the earth to shake beneath him. He went to Los Angeles. Billy Graham went to Los Angeles, invited there by Henrietta Mears to speak at the Forest Home Retreat Center. This is all before 1949, right before 1949 crusade. She invited him to come and to speak at the uh, Forest Home Retreat Center. I mean, this woman is, is someone, if you don't know her name, you need to Google her name and find out who she was. She became the education director at the First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood And the Sunday school program went from 450 people to 4,500 people. Think about that for a moment. And so she sat down. He sat down with this woman of the word. And they began talking about some of the things that were going on in his own mind. He was struggling with. She understood liberal theology. But unlike Templeton, she found the arguments unconvincing. And Billy Graham felt very comfortable because she was able to talk about the Scripture and wield the Scripture in ways that brought comfort to his mind, but he was still questioning. I mean, did Noah actually build an ark to survive a great flood? Could a whale really swallow Jonah? Really, it's a great fish, but could a whale really swallow Jonah? Could a great fish really swallow Jonah? Faith is required. He was struggling. He was there in San Bernardino in the foothills of the mountains. He goes out to take a, a, talk, a, a walk out through a path. He goes off the path over to a tree stump. He opens his Bible up and he begins to talk to God. And this is what he said. This is what changed his ministry. Launched him to become the international evangelist we know of him as being. This is what he said. Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. He said that it was like a burden was lifted off of him. He went and preached that 1949 meeting, 350,000 people over eight weeks came through. 3,000 people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was the beginning of his international ministry to the entire world. And where is Templeton? Where was Templeton? After he graduated from Princeton, he left the ministry. He stopped believing in Christianity. He moved back to Toronto and he became a prominent media personality, writing newspaper columns and providing television commentary. And you wouldn't know anything about him, would you? Faith is necessary. Christmas story shows it. Questions are expected. Even in the Christmas story, it's okay to ask questions. But yielding is personal. Every person has to come to that moment in his or her life when they say, Lord, I yield my life to you.